Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make the dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. For the seventh episode, my guest is Angie of The Kitchenette Tales. Angie is from Singapore and is a Peranakan, a descendant of Chinese settlers and local Southeast Asian people. Our conversation was about making laksa noodles, the Peranakan and Singapore food experience, and her approach to cooking. Angie, welcome to the eighttheworld.com podcast. I'm really, really happy that you're, you're with me. Having this chat, because of how important Singapore has been in my life, and because you cook all of the dishes that I love. <laughs> That's great. Before we started this, while we were having chats online, I suggested, why don't you think of a dish and we'll both make it. We'll go down the rabbit hole. And I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. But when you suggested laksa, I thought, oh, this is, this is really going to be something. Can you tell me a little bit about laksa and how it relates to you know, your heritage and, and who you are? Okay. I'm a Puranakan. Okay, that um, dialect of a Chinese race. So it's very specific to the Southeast Asian area. So we are basically uh, descendants of South China immigrants who married local ladies. So we are Chinese by ethnicity, but we also take on Malay and Indonesians and even Eurasian customs in food, in living. So as a Chinese, I don't speak Chinese at home. In fact, I speak Malay and English at home. We use a lot of spices, and every meal we have heavy gravies, which is what laksa is, uh, a very heavy, elaborate, spice-heavy dish. So when you suggested I cook something, and I think two weeks ago I did a poll, I had collected prawn heads, and I was like, what dish should I cook with this? And everybody was, majority of the people were saying, let's cook laksa. So when you were saying, suggest something, I was like, okay, let's cook laksa. There's no, nobody who's lived in Singapore who doesn't like laksa. So that's why I suggested that. Different places in Asia have different laksa. So, you know, there's Assam laksa, there's Sarawak laksa, there's Katong laksa, all these different variations. Yes. Each of the variations is special, but yes. the one that I'm most accustomed to is the Katong style laksa, which is the one that, that we decided we were going to make together. But I think in Malaysia, this dish, this laksa dish is known as curry laksa, but they are not in Malaysia, their curry laksa is not as shrimp heavy. They're more chicken stock heavy than the one, the katong laksa. But that's because you live in Singapore. So I'm, I'm sure the katong laksa is more accessible for you. Yes. Most of the time I lived or I worked closer to the West Coast. So laksa literally meant if I'm going for sneakers, because the famous sneaker mall in Queensway Shopping Center, I'd stop by and get a bowl of laksa or any of the hawker stands have laksa. But there are a few places which have extra special laksa. But I was surprised when you said that for laksa, it's not something that you would go out to make. Can you talk about that a bit? Because to make laksa, you have seen my highlights, you need a lot of prawn heads. And I think if you're doing business, if you're running a business, the access to that much prawn heads is not really that easy. So I feel okay, when, when we taste it at Peranakan, we can, we can taste that they are anchovies heavy instead of shrimp heavy. So the broth tasted more like anchovies and chicken stock, whereas in 
proper laksa should taste of prawns, should be very prawny. When people think in the West, when people think of anchovies, they think of tinned anchovies yes. uh, in oil. But uh, this is this is more like an econ bilis, a dried anchovy, correct? Yes, it's sun-dried and very heavily salted. I added that to my stock to give it another dimension. But it has to be more prawn-tasting, more prawny-tasting rather than anchovies. I think it, it's less hearty when you're eating it outside. Whereas when you're cooking at home, it's a very heavy dish. The amount that you get at the food court, that will be too much to eat at home. You eat half a bowl, half that bowl size when you're eating it at home. Because everything, the, the shrimp, the dried shrimp that we pounded in make the broth really, really heavy. Yes. So we don't eat that much at home, you know. Like the, I, I made three big bowls yesterday that was enough for five girls. And we had leftover of the noodles. I saw all of your girlfriends posting their different take on the food that you made. <laughs> and it was a huge fan club. They are very sweet girls. Yeah, yeah. I have a group of very sweet girls who um, work their schedule around my cooking. Shout out to them. They're the, they're the sweetest girls. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll eat whatever I cook for them. I'm very lucky. When I made laksa, I, w- I knew what I was getting into, that there's so many different levels yeah. and so many different um, ingredients that you have to prepare to get ready to make laksa. Can you talk about your process? What, what was your starting point to say, I'm going to prepare this special dish? Because I knew I was doing it for lunch, so I prepared the rumpa the day before. But I think we both had a difference. You bleach your dried shrimp, dried shrimp together with your spice paste, whereas I separated them. I blitzed the spice paste and I hand-pounded the dried shrimp because I needed the dried shrimp to give me the, give the soup the gritty texture. And if I had blitzed it with the spice, it would make it too fine. So I separated both of them and I think you forgot to toast your spices as well, which gave it that the, the extra oomph. Yeah, so I always dry toast all the dry spices and then I bleach them and submit the rumpa first. And then the first thing in the morning when I woke up, I did the prawn broth, which is the next thing that required the longest period of time. I prepared the, long, uh, the broth and once all these are ready, the getting ready part was pretty easy. Just fry the spice, added the broth and just let it simmer for a while. When I saw a picture of you waiting in the queue to get into the wet market to get the cockles, <laughs> that made me so envious because there's a place I could go that has cockles, but it's an hour and 20 minute drive. And I thought, oh, this is too much. So I ended up using tiny clams, like a vongole clam, just to get a hint of the flavor of the sea. But it's really not the same at all. One of the girls actually added the cockles just before she ate it. She tried the broth without the cockles and she tried the broth after she added the cockles in and she just went like, oh my God, I didn't know uh, what a dimension these cockles will add to the broth. I didn't know it would make the broth taste so good. So I actually spent one hour and 20 minutes saucing those cockles as well. I thought it would be everywhere, but yesterday I couldn't find them in three supermarkets and I refused to give up. No, so I ended up at Gelang Surai Market, which took a twenty minutes queue to get in, and it was sold out. And I managed to find it in one supermarket across the street. I had a picture in my mind how my laksa would look like. I would have cancelled the whole lunch if I couldn't find the blood cockles. Yeah, that's me. 
Anyone who's listening who doesn't really know what a blood cockle is, a blood cockle is, it's a small bivalve clam, right? Shellfish? It's a shellfish and it has a ridged shell and inside it, it's really dark. I mean, and you have to, you know, you cook it to open it up and you have to rinse out all of the sand. But once, once you do it, it tastes a lot heavier and mustier than a normal clam. So it tastes like the sea, but it tastes like all kinds of marine life too. It's much deeper than a clam. Right. And in Asia, in Southeast Asia, we love to eat them just barely cooked. That's why it's called bloody clam, uh, bloody cockles, you know? So we don't cook, we don't cook them fully. We, we, we literally blanch them with hot water, boiling water, a couple of rounds, and we just open them, you know, clean away the grit and add them to whatever we are eating or just dip them in chili and eat them. I remember go- a lot of times going to uh, Newton Circus and ordering a plate of uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. a plate of cockles. And it's not like in the West. In the West, the rule of safety is you have to make sure your clam opens fully. With this, every clam you have to, every cockle you have to open yourself. Yes. And you get your hands all bloodied, you know, from the blood going down, you know, from the juice. Yeah, yeah. But that's experience, isn't it? You get your hands dirty. Isn't that how we're supposed to eat? Oh, it's lovely. It's really great. I managed to get everything, but I'm, I was looking at your version. I, mean, I was so in awe of what you did with your, your, your normal bean curd, how you turn your tofu into tofu. That was interesting. It was interesting, but it was like necessity is the mother of invention. So when I went to the local Asian market, mm-hmm. they had taupok last week, but not this week. So ordinarily, like, I wouldn't, why would I want to fry my own tofu? It's silly. Uh, so then I realized the only way I'm going to, to do this, and I couldn't eat without that, because I knew I was making a lot of small substitutions that I wasn't quite okay with. Like, for example, the leaves, the laksa leaf or the Vietnamese coriander, I couldn't find it. Oh, yeah. So I had to mix regular coriander with mint. And it's close, but it's not really the same thing at all. And the other thing you have to um, do to the broth is to throw in a few stems of this coriander. Okay. You you actually throw in the stalk of this uh, Vietnamese coriander that we call it dangkasum. You you need to throw that in because I think it's the leaves that give laksa that distinctive flavor. The difference between laksa and curry, you know, is it, that dangkasum leaves and the stems. So while I was cooking it, I plucked the leaves out of the stems and I just throw the stems into the broth as it simmers. Yeah, so that's where you lost to me. You know that you 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 that the disadvantage that you had. Yes. You know, but I was surprised you had balachan. The balachan. I used the balachan, but I used the canned balachan. I didn't have access to. Oh, Thai balachan. I'm trying to think if it was Thai balachan or if it was like the. Um, I'll have to check if it was that or Philippine shrimp paste, but. Um, Not bad. <laughs> no, it had the it you know it had the same funk and smell of yeah. that balachan should have. I think maybe either Thai balachan or even Malay balachan. I'll have to see. Okay, yeah, but there are like so many different kinds of balachan in Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, we have Thai. Um, I've never tried the Philippines one though, but I heard it's very funky. It's very funky. And you have the Indonesian. Oh, it's so funky. It's so funky that even in a glass jar, you have to wrap it in plastic when you put it back in your fridge. And clean wrap it or, or put it in Ziploc, you know, when you freeze it. Yes. You have to freeze it. <laughs> That's what we always do. We freeze the ones that are the good quality ones. 
we always freeze it, okay, so they can last. I mean, I'm pretty sure they can last quite long on their own, but freeze them so they don't lose their funk. I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of the jar. I'm thinking about maybe doing like a, a Thai fried chicken and using the blachan in the uh, in the batter. There's so many dishes you can, Southeast Asian dishes, you can cook with blachan. Okay, I'll send you some. Okay, I'll send you. I'll, I'll try not to. I'll try not to um, trick you with any more recipes. It's okay. The one thing I have to I have to admit, you called me out on not having the sambal. I feel gu- I'm guilty as charged. Is it because you don't like the sambal? You don't like sambal on okay as it is, or is it because you forgot about it? No, it's I would say twenty percent that I was already fully booked in terms of all the cooking I was doing. But the the main reason is that <laughs> the the rempa and the laksa was going to end up being quite spicy, which I'm okay with. But I also had to cook for my wife and kids, mm-hmm. and I knew it was at their level already. And the sambal would have taken them over the top. So I thought, if I leave it out, they won't miss it, and they'll be happy with what I made. Well, actually, to, to think about it now, the sambal was the first thing that I prepared for the dish. When we decided that we were going to cook laksa, the sambal was the first thing that I made because it would be the most time-consuming one to make, and it would take up um, too much cooking time. So I made it. Um, a few days, the, like two, one day, right after we decided that we were going to cook laksa, I was like, okay, I need to make a special sambal for the laksa. And then everything, it needs to be fresh. So I made it a day before I was cooking the dish. But for the sambal, I made it one day after we decided we were going to cook laksa. The picture you posted of laksa has three tablespoons full of sambal. And the picture of the sambal that you posted was a huge frying pan worth of sambal. Yeah, I give my sambal to all my friends. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because whenever I make sambal, if you realize the highlights of the girls, okay, they, they love my sambal as much as they love the, the, the laksa itself. So every time when they come over for food, they're like, do you have extra sambal for me to take home? So I'll just pack the sambal, you know, for my neighbors and for my friends. So I always make a big pot. I'm Peranakan. I have four different types of sambal in, sitting around in my fridge for different purposes. I know this is a bit naughty, but I sent a DM to three of your friends to ask them how your laksa was. Did they reply? Yes, they did. Everyone replied. Oh, really? Sweets and crackers. This is what sweets and crackers said. I've become a big fan of Angie's cooking since I first tasted her sambal. It was divine. And she talks about laksa, but really every time she mentions laksa, she also mentions your sambal. So she gives you 11 out of 10. And then Foodie Emily gives you a 10 out of 10. And then Fat Pig Diary, her laksa is very good. First mouth of laksa gravy already got me hooked and thinking it is the best laksa I ever had. She used to go to the one that you go to, the one in Queenstown. Yes. Because <laughs> she lives in the West. So she was like, no, 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 no. I'm coming back for Angie's laksa. <laughs> Sweet Sincretta, she eats my sambal as snacks. Just sipping out of, a, out of the jar or does she dip it in something? There's one sambal that I made that I made that has um, anchovies. The he can't believe that we were talking about. So it's got deep fried anchovies mixed together with the sambal, and she ate it as a snack. I'm like, how did you finish my sambal? She said, because I ate it as a snack. Not even like with rice. Not even just sambal with rice. Just sambal with sambal. Yes, yes, but but that's because that's got like uh, the whole 
he can't believe in it. And she's eating it. And, and each time she'll be bringing like two, two, two jars of my sambal home. And she'll be like, I finished my your sambal. I'm like, what did you do with my sambal? I eat it with everything. <laughs> I have to say, living in America, one of the things I miss the most compared to Singapore is not having nasi lemak for breakfast. Shall we do that next time? Then you're on. Because I think nasi lemak will be interesting because then I will have to invest a lot of time in the sambal. And I think I can find the ikan bilis. Okay. And I'm pretty sure I can find make the coconut rice. Yes. So The coconut rice is difficult. And I actually think nasi lemak would the ingredients of nasi lemak will be easier for you to source than the ingredients for laksa, to be honest. Because of the daun kasong, the Vietnamese coriander, and also um, the proper blachan, and what else did we... Well, the cockles, you know? So I think um, nasi lemak would have been an easier dish for you to recreate. But it has a lot of little parts. You know, the, the, you, it's not just rice. Nasi is rice. Fatty rice, nasi is rice with coconut milk. But it's the side dishes that takes center stage and the sambal. You will lose out on the sambal. But you, I see that you have dried chilies, so it shouldn't be a problem, actually. I can walk you through. I think it's possible. I think I can do a, actually a pretty good job. I've got the egg down already. Yeah. So it's just, it's just in between the egg and the rice and also the sambal. I think I, think I can make a passable nasi lama. And the side dishes are actually... Free and easy. You could just have spam. Some people just order spam in their nasi lemak. Oh, I had a great interview with um, James Park from Jamesy World. He got me turned on to spam, and I've been I've been using a lot of spam. Uh-huh. I think I had spam this morning. I had I had leftover um, like miswa, and uh, I just kind of fried everything up and with some spam and dark soy, and it was actually quite delicious. So, yeah, I could do the spam. I could do the chicken wing. Oh, I could do this one. You just need to get the sambal and the rice, okay? Once you you do the sambal and the rice, and also you have to fry some dried anchovies, dried ikan bilis with a peanut. I think it's possible. Yes, yes, let's do it. Yeah, I think we should. Let's do it. it it's, I mean, that rice, when the rice is cooking, the coconut rice is cooking, it's perfection. Pandan leaves, do you get, will you get, um, can you get access to pandan leaves? Pantan leaf is going to be tough. And I've seen in one of the local Indian stores, I can get pandan flavored water, which isn't really the same. So I'll get a hint of pandan essence, but but not the same as the leaf itself. I will send you a DM later of my big pot of pandan leaves in my balcony. Well, I want to talk about that because I saw that you made pandan ice cream. Yes, I did. I did pandan ice cream. So it's more like a I couldn't find a good recipe online for pandan ice cream. So the one that I made tasted closest to a very light kaya. Do you like kaya when you were living in Singapore? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Your, your taste buds are so salutation. Okay, but um, it, it tasted like a really light kaya, a really cold, light kaya. Why do you think that was the case? I mean, was it not steeped enough or... Why didn't it have a stronger pandan flavor? It has a really strong pandan flavor, but it doesn't have that uh, that rich a coconut milk. Pandan is more of the aroma and it's tasteless. It's like the, the blue pea, the butterfly pea flower. It just gives the color and no flavor. So I think it doesn't have a taste to pandan. It's just the aroma. So if you just 
maybe like a vanilla. But I, I was thinking vanilla might overwhelm the pandan flavor. It might clash. So the best way to go about it is to give it coconut. I think coconut pandan works really well together. Yes. So that's what I did. So maybe next time I would have done it with um, coconut water instead of coconut milk because I like the flavor, but I kind of think it should be kaya ice cream instead of pandan ice cream. But it has a really unique but also fragrant flavor to it. You know, that the aroma was like so good. But the taste, I thought it tasted too much like kaya though. Was this the first ice cream you made when getting your ice cream maker or had you been making ice cream all along? Um, the first ice cream I made was uh, salted caramel ice cream. <laughs> okay. Something that you search on the internet. Then I realized, I mean, it tasted so good, but I don't have a sweet tooth. My my um, inclination goes towards savory food, you know? So after that, it was like, okay, all this seems easy. And um, so let's just try, you know, if you, if you see me, I make potato chips from scratch, okay? I, I, I try to do as many things as I could from scratch just so that I know the processes of making something. Yes, me too. I make my own mipok just last week. You know mipok, right? the one that you needed to add a big baking soda to it to give it that Chinese QQ crunch that, that differentiates pasta from Chinese noodles. So I made my own um, mipok just last week. I'm curious to know how the processes of doing something from scratch is because I think sometimes it's really unfair for us to say, oh, something tastes so bad when we don't know the process of making something from scratch. So my next project is to make fish balls from scratch. Wow. The Mipok I get, and I've made, not yellow, but I made an ergamian, which is, um, it's alkaline. I've made alkaline noodles a bunch of different ways with the baked baking soda, right? So before I was in uh, Singapore, I lived in Hong Kong. And that the chewiness and the springiness of the noodles, like when you have like a wonton mee noodle, uh, you have to have the alkali. Um, and this is great because when you make it at home, you really feel the alkali and you smell the alkali, which reminds you of sitting in, you know, on a stool in a Dai Pai Dong. So I, I think there's something special there, but I haven't gone as far as made my own fish balls. So it should be interesting. Do you have a recipe or are you just going to wing it? What I usually do is I look at a recipe either from a cookbook or online and just to make sure I get the ingredients. Like every time I taste something, I will like try to make out what goes into what, what are the seasonings, what are the ingredients that go into that specific dish. And I'll make a list of what it is. But just to be on the safe side, I will compare it something online on the cookbook. And after that, I just wing. Most of the time, I just wing my recipes. I'm like 90% wing. What is the texture that you're looking for? Because I saw you you sliced up a fish ball for your laksa, and it's the traditional kind of white and springy fish ball. Yes, yes. So is that what you're aiming for? Yes, yes. Those, um, the springy ones, like almost, there's a crunch when you bite into it. Yes. You know, not, not those stodgy ones. But then again, that has to do with the amount. That has to do with the amount of time you've left it in the fridge or on the shelf and how long you've left it in the soup and stuff like that. The fish balls have to be freshly cooked and freshly eaten. A lot of factors go into a fish ball, but usually the first time I make so many mistakes, but I like to laugh at myself. So that's totally fine with me. I learn from my mistakes. I'm actually one of those people who love making mistakes because 
I'm that dumb. I only remember things when I make mistakes. I've went through all 234 of your Instagram posts to prepare for this call. First of all, it doesn't seem like there are that many mistakes there. It looks perfect. Uh, the other thing that I noticed is you really like noodles. I eat rice once every two weeks. I like rice, yes. But when you cook rice, you need to have those side dishes. And I live on my own. Most of the time, I'm on my own. So if I were to prepare four dishes to go with my rice, that means I will have to eat it three meals okay, with the same dishes. And I don't have the habit of eating the same food two times in a row. That's one of the reasons why I'm always inviting my friends over or why I'm always knocking on my neighbor's door to give them food because I don't like eating the same food. Like when I eat the same food the second time, I think they taste completely different. I, I can't commit to cooking rice and three or four dishes to go with that rice. So if, when you cook noodles, if you dump everything, one pot, one pan, and we're done. The range of noodles that you cook or the range of dishes that you cook it is all over the place. It's Thai, it's Singaporean, it's Malay, it's Indonesian, it's Italian. I mean, where did you learn to cook like this? I read a lot of cookbooks and a lot of food magazines. From young, I don't know how to read books. I definitely am hyperactive. If you have seen me, I'm jumping around all the time. I love to read cookbooks on their own. I love to read cook magazines especially because cook magazines go into the, the food science the science of cooking, and I love reading that. So when I look at a dish and I'm like, I think that sounds interesting. Looks interesting, sounds interesting. And I think I can do it. I have 70% of the ingredients. I would just wing it. And, and, and I'm influenced by everything. I have a lot of friends from all over the world, like real-life friends. My, my best friend, she's Indonesian. And my local best friend, she's South Indian. So I, I just get food cravings from them. I just get food influences from them. And you know, when you live in Singapore, you get all kinds of food. And I live in East Coast Road, if you, you know Singapore. There's all kinds of food. I'm surrounded by every possible food from all over the world. I think people don't realize just how central food experience is to Singaporeans and how broad the Singaporean palate is. Yes. I mean, it's really one of the greatest food places in, in, on the planet. And I we are very lucky. We are so strategically located and we have so many expats living in Singapore. So we really have all the possible ingredients from around the world. If you want authentic jamón from Spain, we get that. If you want Italian prosciutto, we get that. If you want Thai ingredients, we don't even have to make do like if you want Thai blachat. Just spend 20 minutes going to the Thai supermarket, a huge Thai supermarket, and you get authentic Thai ingredients. We don't even have to like improvise on it. We really get all the possible ingredients from around the world. And even during lockdown, we were so lucky. The first two weeks, we were a little bit confused. We don't like all the necessities. We have everything in Singapore. That's very, very fortunate. Yes. When people think of Singapore foodies, though, the image that comes to mind, and I saw this on one of the local Singapore websites, people on queue for seven hours to wait for a bowl of ramen because it's the new thing. I remember because I used to work across from the City Hall uh, Mall and J&Co Donuts had just opened up and people waiting three hours to try the latest donut or to try the latest, you know, boba tea. Yes, yes. It's part of the social currency to say, you know, it's new and I've tried it. 
I think is so unique to Singapore. Yes. And at least you're talking about food. I think a lot of people remember Singaporeans as queuing up for the Hello Kitty soft toys that uh, McDonald's was giving us. Yes. Every time when you talk about Singaporeans queuing for food, there will always be somebody. Remember that time when all Singaporeans were queuing for the Hello Kitty soft toys from McDonald's? <laughs> well, this is what makes you so special. Of all my time that I've spent in Singapore, I have a lot of friends who are, are major foodies. But the proportion of friends that are foodie creators that make their own food or have the time to make their own food mm-hmm. um, or have the talent to make their own food, you're, you know, you're the top 1% of 1%. I think it's because, again, eating out is cheap. It's almost cheaper than if you were to cook, especially if you live alone or it's a small family of two, you know? To, to cook a laksa dish yesterday, I mean, I wouldn't cook a laksa dish for myself because it, it just takes too much effort, you know. But if you've gone, just gone up to a hawker center, there's no experts I know who at least in Singapore who doesn't eat in a local hawker center. All experts eat in hawker centers as much as they eat in fancy restaurants. And how much do you pay for chicken rice in a hawker center? $3, $3.50? That is how much in U.S. dollars. Oh, that's like two dollars and eighty cents. It's it it's obscene how inexpensive uh, these dishes are, and the value for what you're getting, and the range of the type of foods you can get. It's really unbelievable. Right. So it almost makes it unnecessary to cook at home. So I get why people are just eating out. So. During the lockdown, people were saying, oh, we're cooking a lot now, but the, the moment it was open, everybody's out eating all over again because it's so convenient. Deliveries are convenient too, you know. The longest you have to wait for a delivery to arrive is 30 minutes and you pay an extra, what, $3? So it's really unnecessary to cook Yes. in Singapore unless you have a family of four. But I, again, I'm a Puranaka. I was born eating at home and watching my parents, my grandparents, my grandma and my mom make food from scratch. So and I enjoy the, the whole making from scratch process. Were there any special dishes that your mom passed down to you or your grandma passed down to your mom that's your family dish? When my friends ask me what goes into, what makes your laksa so special? When I was making it, because I've not made laksa for a while, I had to like go through a cookbook to make sure I get the ingredients correct. Then I realized that the ingredients you can search online and whatever ingredients my mom had told me and whatever ingredients I can get from a good, reliable cookbook, they are the same. It's just the processes that are different. It's just when I say that, it's not like my mom says, you have to put this much into it, okay? Their words are always, use your intuition, feel it. Mom, how much do I put? How much dried shrimp do I put in it? Use your intuition. You will know it. That's what she says. So when I cook, I do not want people around me. Like I tell them yesterday, I said, you have to specifically come after one o'clock because the moment everybody is around me, I get distracted. It's, you feel. That's why I'm always only looking at ingredients. My mom, like, if you let my mom say something, she'll say, it tastes too Chinese, you know? But she doesn't give you the amount. She wouldn't say you have to put this much into it. She just said it tastes too Chinese. No, you don't put enough coriander, but you didn't tell me how much coriander to put. She always taught us, my grandmother taught me as well, to feel, to use her intuition. And that's all. 
That approach is wonderful, by the way. You know, I'm looking at certain dishes that you made that I just stopped and stared at. Like you made a pork belly bao, and I'm not sure. Did you make the steamed rice buns as, as well? I didn't. I'm not very good with the the whole thing about flour, water, and yeast. I'm not good with that. So that's one thing that I want to work on in 2021. You should have seen my fails when it comes to flour with butter. Okay, I'm a wreck. Okay, so I didn't make the steam bao, but I made the Pork belly myself. But I have to say, Singapore is not your friend when it comes to butter baking. I remember having to make cookies <laughs> and intentionally getting up at six in the morning because it's the only time that I was able to roll out my, my butter-based cookie dough without the butter turning into liquid. And I knew I had an hour between, say, six and seven o'clock where the kitchen was still cool enough that it could go, the, the dough can go from the fridge or the freezer onto a rolling pan. I can, I can measure out and cut the, uh, the dough without it getting too sticky. And I saw you had made, um, on the first of the year, you made a beautiful bunt cake. Uh, there were other dishes that you made, which were hints of baking. It seemed more tentative than when you were making like the sambal udang or, you know, the beef rendang looked unbelievable. I live in Indonesia, so that's why my beef rendang is, uh, I mean, I have a lot of help all these years. I, I've lived in Bali for three years, so my Indonesian food is pretty, pretty on point. My baking is the only one that I have to have a browser on the site when, when I'm baking, just so that I can refer. So my baking is the one that I go 50-50. I, I, I don't wing it 100%. I don't wing it 90% like the way I do for my cooking. Those are better base cooking. Which you see me with dough base cooking, dough base cake, like making pie crust. I feel so miserably. I think I might have it on one of my side. Like it was almost hilarious. I'm intended to make a ten inch pie, and it ended up being a two inch pie. That's all the 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 pie crust that worked in the end. So all the other pie crusts kind of either fell apart or rolled out or or got stuck or yeah that's too bad. And I have naturally warm hands, which you know warm weather. And my aircon was at full blast whenever I bake butter butter based stuff. Baking is always done in the living room, right under the aircon vent, you know. And it's like eighteen degrees, but still with my warm hands, my palms are very warm. Warm fingers on the equator and butter really don't mix so well. Yes, but that's always one of my dreams to make croissants. Oh, okay. You're so brave. Yeah. So my friend was like, um, the amount of money you'll be spending on your air conditioning bills, you might as well just go to the best bakery and just buy the croissant on their own. There are a couple dishes that I say are not just beyond what I can do, but so far beyond that it would just, I wouldn't even come close. A laminated dough, like a croissant dough, that's it. I don't know if you ever saw, there's a video of a Japanese cook that made the special omelet that goes into amu rice, that he slices it down the middle and it drips over the edge. I, I saw that. That's, that's one of those food things that you cannot stop but keep looking. You just need on repeat, isn't it? It is, but it's, I think it's so far beyond that I, th- I think I would go through three dozen eggs and just end up with a lot of frustration. Are you one of those people like me who just keep on doing something and, until you get it right? Of course. Three weeks ago, I was obsessed about um, Danish butter cookies, authentic Danish butter cookies. Okay. So I called my friend. I was actually watching YouTube in Danish 
Okay, so I can figure out whatever she was trying to add in, you know, the ingredients, but there was this first six seconds that she did that I couldn't figure out what it was. And I had to call, I called my friend who in Dema, and it was 3.30 in the morning. And I screamed at her to go watch that YouTube video for six seconds and tell me what that lady did. And she was just going like, what, what? I said, I sent you a link now, now, watch it now. Oh, she just ground, she just grinded the, the, the almond. Oh, okay, that's it. Okay, good night. And it was 3.30 in the morning. I was screaming at her. I was like, go watch that. She said, can I do it later? No, now, now, now. I'm, I'm mildly obsessed. Of the Danish cookies that you see in the Big Ten, which ones did you do? Uh, actually, it's none of the above. Okay, if you've been to Denmark, the cookies are very almond-based. They grind real almond. They don't even use almond flour like we did in macarons. They grind fresh almonds into their flour. So like when my friends tried it, it's more like almond cookies instead of Danish, like the ones, the blue tinned ones that we get from the supermarket, you know? Yeah. And one of the things I realized is they don't even use vanilla extract. They really scrape out the vanilla beans and, and you know, they just roll it together with the sugar. Oh, that's so nice. So I actually spent four vanilla pots making four round butter cookies in one weekend. There are a few things that you can smell the sweetness of vanilla sugar. It's it's so decadent. Yes, it's so decadent. And, and I learned it from them that every time you use vanilla pot, you just put the pots, the leftover pots in your sugar. So now in my in my sugar jar, I have like 20 pots in my sugar jar. So I just keep adding the sugar to those vanilla pots every time I buy new sugar. So there are 20 uh, vanilla pots in my jar of sugar. I saw that you made a dish called uh, frikadella, which is Danish meatballs. Yes, Danish meatballs. Yes, frikadella. Yeah. One of my friends actually suggested we both make frikadella together. Then I'm like, but I'm not Danish. Frikadellas are good. They're like Swedish meatballs, but slightly easier. Less spices are being used. For frikadella, they add soda water. That is slightly bigger. The interesting thing is that it's slightly smaller than a hamburger patty. Okay? And it's um, almost like a rugby shape. So what they will do is whatever they don't have, they can't finish. They'll just slice into and put it on their open sandwich the next day. During the lockdown, you know, among all the other things I've done to occupy my time, somehow I got hooked on a Danish TV series that's showing on Netflix. And I thought I'm going to make an open face sandwich and I'm going to try to make the authentic fermented Danish bread. And then I started investigating, like, what would I need to do to be able to find all of these different grains and ferment it myself? And I gave up. But I think fricadella I can handle. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Uh, soda water. That's the one. Sometimes, in fact, they add Sprite or 7-Up to it. I could see that because it, it has sage or nutmeg in it. So there's a, a tinge of sweet. So 7-Up so wouldn't go bad with that. Not, as long as it's, it's a hint, not a, not a strong flavor. You add soda water to the, to the meatballs, but not the whole can. Just maybe like a third. Again, you feel. If it starts getting sticky, you, you stop. So after she added it, she said it's definitely fluffier. It starts the bubble. I made a dish called matzo balls, which is basically crushed up unleavened crackers with uh, chicken fat and eggs. So it forms a dumpling. But the addition of soda water is really important because it starts the bubbles and, and otherwise you get rather dense balls. So that's what they add to it. And I'm like, really 
nothing special. I think if you compare all the different meatballs, they all taste, I mean, they pretty much have the same ingredient, just like the Chinese meatballs might add spice, spice powder. But Chinese meatballs, we also add, you know, the cream crackers? What do you call cream crackers? I know them as the cream crackers, like. Squarish ones that we get in in Singapore, where you just dip it in coffee. Or- yeah, yeah, in the big in the big metal tins. Nobody buys it in big metal tins now. Rob, it's too much. Am I dating myself? But yeah, they used to be sold in big metal tins. Yes, those. Yeah, so we crush them up because they have a little bit of butter inside. So we crush them into like their powder. So instead of adding just flour, we add these crushed up cream crackers into our meatballs. So the Italians would probably, some people would add panko. I mean, the Danish, they add panko as well, or oatmeal. Other than that, all the ingredients are pretty much similar. It's just, I think, regional-wise, what, whatever is, uh, goes according to your culture, you add it. Okay. But the other thing I realized is fricadella is just the Danish version of burgadil. Do you know what's a burgadil? In Singapore, the potato patty that you get with all the Malaysian Malay dishes? Yes, absolutely. So my office was above Rendezvous Restaurant in the Central. Yes, yes. And sotong curry, a few of the potato balls, and a bit of rice with the gravy on it used to set me up quite nicely for the day. So that's just a Danish version of a potato. So they are, I mean, again, culturally, so one is potato base and then the other one is meat base. Yeah, and I do quite a mean burger deal if you want the recipe. I'd love the recipe because I saw the picture and it looks outstanding. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do quite a good. Uh, I, I again, I have, I had some help from my Indonesian friends, but I managed to nail it down, and it's, it's quite easy. And I know there is a for that there is a secret recipe. For laksa, there is no secret recipe. It's just the process that you do differently when you're a piranha It's just more more labor-intensive, okay? But ingredients-wise, I would say laksa ingredients, you can get it online. But for Pongadil, there's a secret, one little secret ingredient that you might add, you need to add to it. If you tell me right now, I promise only you, me, and everybody listening will find out. Can you share? It's not mac powder. It's not mac powder. Nobody would have... I mean, it, it elevates just a little bit of not mac powder, gives that edge to the potato. That's so good. I'm staring right now, and I'm going to encourage anybody who has checked out your Instagram page, on May 30th, you posted an Indonesian-themed lunch, which has the perkadil, and it has the kropok, and it has the gado-gado, and it has everything. It's so it's such a beautiful plate. I mean, the whole thing is is so wonderful. Yeah. During the lockdown, we, I mean, we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't go out with friends. So what we did was, among our neighbors, we did a theme, a theme, lunch, theme lunches every week. So there was one week that we did the Indonesian, because she loves Indonesian food as much as I do. So what we do is, after we cook, we just put it in a tray, leave it outside each other's house, and hack each other. That's so lovely. So we just open, and then we just add it, and then she has her own version. She'll take her pictures and take photos of it and put it on her Instagram <laughs> or highlights and I'll do the same, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's contactless sharing. So we're like, okay, um, we'll do lunch at two o'clock. Okay. So this is what I'm making. Okay. This is what you're making. Um, and then like two o'clock. So at about 1.45, K, 
okay, we'll put the chair outside or whatever. And then we're just, I'm sending food over and then we just ring the doorbell and just walk away. That's so great. I want to wrap up this conversation because an hour has flown so fast. I mean, you've got thousands of followers. I even noticed you have a few followers in, in the small state of Connecticut where I'm from. What's next for you? What, what are you going to be focusing on? What new things are you going to be trying? 2021 is the year I'm going to do flour, butter, cake, slash flour, yeast, water, more recipes based on those. And this give me three months. If I feel miserably, I'll cry, you know, and I'll walk away. I, I, I really like that whole made from scratch thing. So as, as much as possible, I really want to do everything from scratch. I actually Googled how to make my own rum. Okay, don't ask me what, okay? But I, I, I want to make more things from scratch as much as possible because I feel sometimes we eat too much with our eyes. We, we forgot the label of love that these people put into the food. And it's really unfair for us to just knock somebody down based on one experience, one bad dining experience to say something doesn't taste good. Or sometimes there are really some mean-spirited people who just completely bash business just because that was a bad day for them, you know. I want to put my money where my mouth is and I don't bash people. Okay, even when I eat something badly, I'll always just say, oh, it wasn't worth my calories, unless it's bad service, okay, which I will not tolerate. I think it's going to be great. You know, the funny thing when you mentioned the attitude or the mindset, which, you know, throws shade at a dining establishment. And, you know, I think we've all seen it, right? The thing that has impressed me the most when I launched my Instagram page, and trust me, my cooking is nowhere near as photogenic and beautiful as your cooking. But the community of people that are also home cooks, everybody's throwing support and throwing love my way. And I think they're throwing a lot of love your way. It's energy. If you if you start doing something out of love, there's actually no reason for anybody to be mean to another person. Even a business, there's just no need to. You know, if you really have bad feedback, do it privately. Constructively and privately. That's the thing. Constructive. If you have never done something, not even close doing that, please do not bash another person. Please don't do that. That's just not right. I'm very lucky. I have a lot of uh, really nice IG friends. I refuse to call them followers. I call them my IG friends. Well, I think this is the purpose of me doing this podcast is that, you know, you end up having a, a friendship and a bond with people when you're commenting on what they've created from their heart and vice versa. But I think it's also interesting, you know, for someone to get to know you better and to understand what makes you happy and, and the motivation behind cooking a lot of these dishes, because we all see the, the, the pretty finished product, but to really get to know you better gives us a, a, a real taste of the passion that, that's behind it. I hope so, but I do post my fails on my highlights, though. Do you? Where, where, where are your fails? I, I, you have to look for them. I, I put so many of them, okay? I'm seeing you have a beautiful bowl that looks like unagi-don with salmon eggs and... Is that the one with the egg film? The one I thought the egg was badly done? Yes, that was the one. <laughs> In my mind, again, I have a picture when I wanted to cook a dish. I have a picture of how it looks like. It's supposed to be ramen eggs. So that's why I kept saying it's a fail because in my head, they are ramen eggs. Oh, okay. 
I would encourage you to look on my Instagram page. I made uh, chocolate eclairs and it was so nice. The pastry um, cream turned out great. The patachou, the pa- the actual pastry shells turned out great. But something broke when I made the ganache that it ended up looking Really, it looked like a Jackson Pollock picture. And it didn't look clean and it didn't look pretty. And I posted it. What ends up happening was people still liked it. I feel sometimes I'm my own worst enemy where I've got this image that I think my dish should look like. And if it doesn't hit exactly that, I'll be more critical than other people will be of of the same dish. Definitely, definitely. We're definitely the most critical of all the critics. I know it's a taste that matters, but I'm not the, one of those who put props on my photos. If you realize mine is just the food. I give respect to you. You you are the person who likes your food hot, the way it's supposed to eat. So you just like snap, snap, like a real life photo. When I want my food to be eaten very quickly, those food appear on my stories. So it's just a snap, post it on my story and I have to eat it quickly. I would die to, to, to be able to jump into this bowl of uh, unagi on rice. It's so delicious. And I understand there's a difference between the standards that we all have going into it and what it ends up as, which may be disappointing. But if this is characteristic of a failure, I think you're doing great. There's a dish a lot earlier where you made like a, a jajangmyeon. Uh-huh. And that egg is so perfect. Even the egg white where it touches the yolk is still kind of still wonderful. You know, we know what perfection looks like. We've been there. Um, sous vide eggs, yes. Exactly. Okay, Angie, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate you sharing your views with me. Thank you for having me, Rob.